Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 12 on January 13th, 2017, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today's main topic is alcohol, and we'll be talking to John Puchalski from Brew & Grow. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup, research updates, and a preview of next week's DIY feature, which will kick off a series on bicycle maintenance. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you can also find all of our archive podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram. Just search for our name. So now let's get on to an interview I recorded this week with John Pachalski from Brugo here in Madison, Wisconsin. Who are you and how long have you been working at Brew & Grow? Uh, my name is John Pachalski. Uh, I've been working at Brew & Grow for uh, about four of almost five years now, I mm-hmm. think. I've uh, been brewing for maybe almost six now. Um, I got into Brew & Grow really from the brew side. Um, I, uh, after college, my friends kind of did a little home brewing just for the fun of it, and uh, I picked it up, and I like to read, so I just started reading books about it. And before I knew it, uh, I read more about beer brewing than I had about my four-year degree. So <laughs> then at that point, I kind of thought, well, maybe I should go back to school, and that's eventually what I did. Okay. Um, and then I, I went to the Siebel Institute in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have an associate's uh, in brewing tech, okay. um, and that's really what kind of got me in at Brew & Grow. Uh, for those, I'm, I'm sure some people listening already have a pretty good idea of how alcohol gets made, but could we briefly just go over the science for non-scientists of how uh, alcohol gets made? Well, uh, it's all really revolving around microbes. You know, it's a microbial process. It's really a metabolic process. Um, They're hungry. They want to eat sugar. They want to eat food. Um, That's really what we're harnessing. Uh, When I tell people, introduce them to beer brewing, I kind of say to them, really, we're yeast wranglers. We're wranglers of microbes. We're just making them homes and we take care of them. And hopefully they give us what what we want out of them. You know, that's that's really it in a nutshell. You know, you mix up sugar water um, or some sort of solution with nutrient in it. You introduce your microbe, whether it's a fungus or a bacteria or what have you. Um, It does its thing. There's a little bit of processing, you know, to make it nice for us, whether that's bottling or filtering or aging, you know. And that's it. That's wine, beer, cider, cheese, kefir, kombucha, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, it's the, so it's the same process. It's the yeast metabolizing the sugar. What makes that one alcoholic product taste different across all the different products? You always have your sugar source contribution. Um, you know, spice and flavoring is an incredibly broad category. Uh, it can be everything from the barrels that we age wine in to the hops that we put in beer um, to heck where the, how the bees get their honey, you know, from where they get that. Um, you know, every ingredient has its own flavor contribution as well. Water, you know, people don't think about it, but really the minerals that we dissolve in water, they do have a taste. Um, and in brewing and many, you know, things, you replicate regional water types to kind of accentuate. Um, and then you can get into the chemistry of it. There's all kinds of reasons why it's good for the yeast. It's good for you. You know, yeast are incredible um, that they can take care of themselves in a huge variety of environments. And uh, as long as you kind of give them core components, they can handle the rest themselves. Obviously, the more difficult you make it for them, uh, the more they tend to stress, the, the harsher, the more unpleasant it generally tastes to us. Hmm. Now, it's interesting that the difficulty that they have in their little reproductive lives translates to what the palatability for us. Oh, yeah. Could you briefly go over the steps that everyone who's ever been on a brewery tour knows for beer? <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean... Uh, you get your grains, and typically you mill them kind of coarsely, um, and, and you make uh, oatmeal, so to speak, you know, hot water. Um, and the mash is generally 
pH, temperature, and time. You know, those are the three you know variables that you're controlling. Um, so once the mash, uh, which is all the breakdown phase, uh, then the sparge begins, which is the extraction phase. Um, so then you kind of rinse all the sugars, the proteins, all the good stuff out. And um, you know, depending on what your country of origin is, you do things a little differently. Uh, the Germans have an extra step; they have a special filtering step. Uh, that's the louder ton, whereas the English do it all in one vessel, single infusion mash, which is pretty much how everyone brews here in America. Uh, but yeah, once it's all extracted from the grain, and it goes on to the, the boil kettle, um, and, you know, and that should all be pretty straightforward. Yet. I, I know that kombucha has recently come up as a kind of popular fermented beverage. Are there, are there any other um, unusual ones out there that we might not have heard of that you've come across? And not necessarily that it's going to be the next big thing, but is there sure. something out there that's worth... Well, one of the things that... Uh, I really like about fermentation that I found really interesting as far as fermentation history is concerned is that almost all peoples use fermented foods. You know, uh, across all countries and all indigenous peoples, we all use some sort of pickling, some sort of fermentation. Um, you know, South America, they made chicha, which is corn beer. Um, that's the one where it's really famous that they chew it and then mm -hmm. spit it into the kettle. Mm -hmm. um, so honestly, the Africa, I know they do a lot of work with bananas and yams, another mm -hmm. root stock. Mm -hmm. um, there's, of course, kefir. Um, there's lots of it. It's pretty much like yogurt, uh, really. Um, but there are different consistencies of it, such as the stuff that is more creamy, more thick. Um, and then there's some stuff that's more like a beverage. Um, the Russians have kvass, uh, which is a re-fermented rye bread. Um, it's kind of a soda there. It's kind of similar to kombucha in the sense that it's very lightly alcohol, maybe a half percent, one percent. Um, but it's kind of more of a refreshing kind of drink. Um, so uh, really, you could go around the world, uh, you know, just from a regional area and just seeing what they're fermenting. You know, it's oftentimes the same stuff, you know, fruits, vegetables, grains, um, milks. Um, it can all really be fermented. So switching gears again, if somebody wanted to start Brewing at home, obviously, there's I don't know, there's a couple websites I've seen online. I'm being facetious. There's a million, oh, yeah. there's a million websites on on that. Um, but if somebody was looking for a really entry level way to kind of start experimenting with uh, wrangling yeast or wrangling microbes, as you say, what what's a good place to start? Well, um, I'm always a book guy. I've always been a book guy, so I might be a little biased, leaning towards you know books. Uh, John Palmer's How to Brew is a good scientific text if you can you know read something dry and very factual like that. Uh, Randy Mosher's um, Radical Brewing. Uh, he he kind of set out to make this book that was about stuff beyond the basic ingredients of beer, but he's a historian by trade, so he, I think he just kind of utterly failed and just wrote a really good brewing book. It's very well arranged. It's very entertaining. Um, but if you don't really like to read, you know, it's a, it's a good book to, to get you introduced. Um, and, of course, there's uh, Charlie Papazian. Um, he's basically the father of modern home brewing in America. He really uh, pioneered for it, pushed for it, campaigned for it in like the 60s, 70s. Um, and when Jimmy Carter, uh, I think, legalized it, I think he was there. You know, he was it like wasn't legal? Oh, yeah, it, it was left over from Prohibition. Um, oh, basically, yeah. beer wasn't something that people generally you know, made. It wasn't, we didn't really have beer culture. There really wasn't a lot of interest in beer making. So there really wasn't any legal drive in America to, to un or to re legalize it, I guess, you know, after Prohibition. Beyond uh, books and, and beginning to learn on, online, what, um, is there a particular beverage that you think is pretty straightforward and maybe not foolproof? Should one jump right in with beer? Or? Uh, you could. I mean, uh, low alcohol is probably going to be easier. Uh, high alcohol is stressful for yeast. So, like, meads can be a little challenging starting out. Um, honey is antimicrobial. It tends to make the yeast work kind of hard. Um, and usually meads traditionally are just very strong, and that stresses them out. 
Um, you know, I often suggest to people, well, what's your definition of wine and cider? You know, because if you can make a 7% wine, um, that's going to be a much faster turnaround, a lot easier to start with than your, you know, super dry Cabernet Sauvignons that are 15% or whatever. Um, so, I mean, brewing is more labor uh, initially, um, but you just kind of follow the instructions and pretty much no matter what you're doing when you're starting brewing, it's all really the same instructions. Um, I suppose that, you know, goes for wine and cider and mead too, um, but lower alcohol percentage will probably ensure a tastier beverage faster. Um, and a lot of times when you're doing high alcohol stuff, um, you have to address issues that pop up like, well, this isn't completely done. What do we do? Or, oh, this tastes really strong or really harsh. What do we do? Um, so um, make something that you enjoy. That's really one of the things, you know, you want to enjoy this stuff. That's, that's the crux of it. If one wanted to um, start out doing this, what are some of the basic tools that you'd need? Well, uh, I would, you know, go to a supply shop. There are lots of kits, and generally if you look at what's in a lot of these kits, they're all really the same. Uh, you're going to need some sort of vessel to hold all this liquid. Um, you're going to need some way to transport said liquid gently. Uh, you don't typically pour it out of a container like a pitcher. Um, you want to siphon it. But yeah, kits uh, are a good way to go. Um, you can buy this stuff piecemeal. Uh, but chances are it's it's more expensive. Um, an airlock, you know, you can double with a balloon. Um, there's always a cheap fix for a lot of this stuff. But if you cut all the corners, it's going to be frustrating. You're going to have a bad time. You're not going to want to do it. So uh, investing a little bit of money into your, you know, stuff is, is worthwhile. Uh, I find that, like, L.D. Carlson's uh, beer kits, who's pretty much what you're going to find in almost every brew shop in America these days, um, they do a really good job of only giving you what you need and you can translate that to almost any beverage. You know, you can take the you know beer brewing kit and decide to make wine or cider. You know, with all the same tools. Um, some of them, like say the hydrometer, you don't really need to know if you don't care how much alcohol is in there. Mm -hmm. But you know, again, I'm kind of a stickler and a perfectionist, so uh, I find value in a lot of these tools. What are some of the more common pitfalls that people who are starting up brewing at home experience, or is it, or is it completely? idiosyncratic? Well, uh, probably I see more uh, errors in microbial handling. You know, whether it's a cleanliness issue, you know, people don't clean enough or they don't clean in the right way um, or they get careless in one aspect and something gets through. Um, so you can see spoilage like that. I mean, typically a homebrew curriculum is really strict about that stuff and we really try to uh, scare people to be overly clean. Um, so usually when you see people not emphasize it is when you see errors like that pop up. So it's a diligence issue, really. I see a lot of errors, people uh, pitching like dry yeast directly into really rich wort. That shocks them, kills the colony. Um, same thing with temperature. Um, they didn't you know, cool the wort down enough. Um, or uh, there were even some instructions on yeast packets back in the day to like microwave your culture, what? which is uh, not, not at all a good idea. <laughs> so, I mean, usually you see people abusing yeast, and that's why uh, usually when I teach this stuff, I really make great pains to point out this is a living organism, you know, treat it that such. If you're not sure what to do, uh, if you ask yourself that question, this is a life form, what does it want? Like, that is a good way to kind of address an issue. And you mentioned uh, teaching classes. I know you guys have some classes at um, Brew and Grow. What kind of basic classes do you have or how often do you offer them? Uh, typically, I do classes about once a month. I do a beginning um, probably, I'm going to do it this year, uh, 2017, every other month. Uh, so January and March uh, will be basic, the beginner's class. Um, and really, that's introducing extract or brewing 
and uh, it's all geared towards uh, basically going over things that aren't esoteric. Like I, a bucket's a bucket. I, you know, figure people know what that's used for. A spoon's a spoon. Um, but an auto siphon, an airlock, um, you know, things like what is malt extract? How are hops used? You know, um, so the beginning course is really an introduction into malt extract brewing um, and really the basics of beer. Uh, I will be doing an advanced class. Uh, I'm actually still writing it um, at the time of the recording. Uh, hopefully that should be done soon, and I'm going to do that on the uh, even months, so February, April, etc. Um, will be the advanced class, um, and that will be focusing largely on all grain brewing, um, uh, yeast, and uh, really quality control. Um, because, like I'm a Siebel guy, um, I'm very much tool and equipment and procedure oriented, so I go over things like the proper use of a pump and why it's important, heat exchange, all that kind of, mm-hmm. kind of jazz. Um, and obviously being a uh, gardening shop, uh, we teach a lot of people gardens. Um, that's another thing we have in the works is trying to get like a gardening course. So um, probably like a basic, like this is how, what plants need. And then in advance, which would be more like in-depth hydroponics and hmm. stuff like that. If people were looking for classes, where would they find out when classes are happening? They'd be on our uh, website, brewandgrow.com. It's all text. So I obviously work at the Low Technology Institute and our idea is kind of self-sufficiency. And obviously today, a lot of the brewing process is, depends on you know long distance transportation of all the different ingredients and the, um, the materials and the, and the tools and a lot of refrigeration and a lot of, you know, uses a lot of electricity and a lot of modern stuff, which is fine and great. Mm-hmm. But if, let's say, we wanted to brew fairly self-sufficiently, because that was obviously done before industrialization, they weren't sending away for yeast, you know, they weren't using auto siphon yeah, uh, airlocks. <laughs> yeah, they were using, you know, barrels and big wooden paddles and open air vats and cauldron type things to heat the wort and all these different things. So not that we necessarily need to go to that, but let's say I wanted to, I know yeast propagation is kind of an advanced technique and only works for a couple of cycles. And for those that don't know, yeast propagation is basically reusing your yeast. Yep. Right? When you're yep. done, the yeast kind of settles to the bottom once it's exhausted or once yep. it's hit too high of an alcohol content. There is a max cell age limit because mm-hmm. yeast, they bud. Um, so they clone themselves on their skin. Mm-hmm. And when the cell, the daughter cell separates itself, mm-hmm. it leaves a scar. And uh, so there's a, a maximum amount of surface area that a yeast has. And so um, as, as they bud, they get older. And after a certain point, they can't really do that anymore. And they get heavier. Uh, older cells tend to float to the bottom. Um, we're not really sure why flocculation takes place. That's the uh, yeast behavior to clump together and fall out. Um, but they go dormant uh, for a long period of time after their main frenzy, their feeding frenzy. Mm-hmm. There are actually a lot of breweries that do um, recycle um, their cakes, um, but it, it, there's a huge gamut in uh, how intense that is. Uh, for instance, there are Belgian breweries that say, uh, we've reused the same yeast slurry since the Middle Ages. Probably full of crap, but, you know, they, they might you be You mean figuratively, not literally. Well, to some extent, <laughs> literally. I mean, that's kind of how they did it back in the day was just pull a shovel full of the slurry in the bottom of the thing and they kicked it off. All right. um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously it's a little more sophisticated these days with a, a laboratory getting involved. A lot of big breweries will have those facilities. Um, so I've also heard about, uh, you know, anecdotally from another archaeologist who was talking about, uh, kind of like you said, in, in Belgium, they said they'd been using the same strain forever. And there was a brewery he went to in Sweden where they had a paddle. It didn't look very like it had ever been cleaned off. And that was where they said the yeast and the microbes lived on this paddle and then they'd stir each batch with that mm-hmm. paddle that would be their pitching of yeast um and i know that in uh, ancient egypt a lot of the vessels had cracks and surfaces in them that would retain harbor microbes yeah exactly and so they would empty out the vessel 
and then when they put the new sewer water in, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, in, it would uh, inoculate itself from that remaining surface. Is yep. that something that's done at all today anymore? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's now some of these practices you, you pretty much revolve around being a specialty brewery. Like uh, Jolly Pumpkin uh, from Michigan comes to mind. Um, they are a sour beer brewery, and everything they do is sour and funky and wild. Um, it's it's a style of brewery. It's uh, if anyone's ever heard of like lambic or uh, creeks or gooses, um, that kind of brewing uh, it's 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 a very romantic notion. Um, you pretty much run your brewery uh, around this concept. You know, like a brewer a brewer in one of these breweries would have all these wooden vessels and they catch microbes. You know, through wild means, whether it's a paddle or a beard or something like that, and you can basically inoculate these barrels and wood. Um, is actually a really good home for microbes, and uh, it, it hosts a lot of different microbes. And when you have a really good, diverse uh, microcosm in there, they will all be able to get fed because what one excretes, another will pick up. And it, uh, it slowly degrades the fibers in the barrel and stuff like that. So these vessels, they mature, they age, they change their flavor profile, the ratios of, of microbes change over time. And a brewer of one of these places would go through and say, okay, we're going to take a golden wort, put it in tank A. Um, we're going to take a dark wort, put it in tank B. And then we're going to take this rye wort and put it in tank C. We're going to take one part tank C, a dash of tank A, and then fill it up with tank B. And that's uh, our line for the year. So blending and, you know, observing these barrels and understanding what, what they do to the beer is like a big part um, of lambiques and gooses and really wild breweries in general. But it's very challenging because sometimes the results don't turn out well and you have this basically pile of crap that you have to sell um, and have to convince people that it's a, a really amazing beverage. Um, so blending is really your friend, uh, but there's always that probability where you have to dump it uh, because it gets moldy or something. And um, a lot of breweries, they just can't foot the cost um, because, you know, when you're dumping $10,000 worth of beer down the drain or you got to scrap a vessel um, that's got mold in it, you know, that might be another $30,000 because cooperage uh, is, is really expensive these days. It's really a luxury um, that a lot of breweries just, you know, they don't always get to have. I think we saw a picture of a Dogfish Head brewery mm-hmm. in Delaware has a huge, huge... Uh, Fodder. They're called Fodders. I, I can't even describe how large it is. It looks like a silo. Right. But it's a wooden barrel. Yep. Enormous. A friend of mine, uh, we took him there uh, as a surprise. Uh, it was his, he was getting married that weekend, and uh, before then we kidnapped him and took him to Dogfish Head. <laughs> so that was a good surprise for him because he's a big beer nut. He's probably listening right now. Hey, Dave. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so we kind of got off topic from self-sufficiency. Well, um, I mean, those that type of brewing where if you have a vessel that can mm-hmm. harbor those things and you're not – I mean, you could, I suppose, pitch yeast to make a more consistent product, but if you wanted to experiment and – Try and keep it going. That would be. I mean, I, I often look to these non-industrial or pre-industrial techniques because they're the sure. ones that were able Survived, to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, se- selected. I guess you could say. Uh, if technology is evolutionary, then <laughs> they were selected for uh, survival. Uh, whereas, yeah, today, like the industrial supply chain shut down. How many home brewers are going to be able to make anything for yeah. more than you know six generations of cider or something like that? Yeah. They have laying around. Most of what brewing is is self-sufficient. You know, uh, spice and flavoring. Uh, almost anything can be used. I mean, really, historically, anything um, that we use for spice and flavoring, even things that we shouldn't use for spice and flavoring, um, have gone into beer as some sort of flavor enhancer. Um, So we may not be able to get uh, Nelson Sauvine hops anymore, um, but we still have black pepper, you know, here, uh, or uh, grape skins or, you know, other phenolic components. Um, So there's no shortage of spice and flavorings. We just might have to get more creative. Um, Yeasts, um, you know, yeast banks are really preferred. Um, but if you do get a hold of a culture, um, you can 
theoretically propagated for a very, very long time. And some species are better than others. Uh, your American Ale 1056, Safe Ale 05, White Labs WLP001, they're all pretty much the same strain, and some of them are really hardy, you know, and really can do this. Dry yeast are a good way. Um, they they uh, are quite stable over, heck, multiple years, I think. Um, and then water, I suppose, by extension. Any water you can drink technically is, is water that's suitable for brewing. So um, those things are all pretty easy to remain self-sufficient. The difficulty is your sugar source. Yes. If you are willing to use local sugar sources and diversify, you can probably have a successful, very uh, regional brewery. But corn and barley and some of these things, they don't. Maltsters uh, also have a big hand in this, too. Um, I think if brewers, well, they, if they decided to grow barley, one, they'd realize, wow, I need a lot of space to grow a lot of barley, mm -hmm. you know, to grow... Five gallons of maybe 5% beer, you need about 10 to 12 pounds of barley. Mm. And uh, that's a field, you know, like at that point, you know, you've probably converted most of your yard into barley crop. Um, so you have to grow all this barley, harvest the barley, um, and then take it to a maltster. Um, mm. So if you were to do this all on your own, you would probably not have a very alcoholic beer. It would be a very rustic farmhouse yeah. ale. Mm -hmm. um, so the sugar source, I think, would be the, the most difficult problem for being a truly self-sufficient brewery. It's probably why cider was at, at least as popular, if not more popular, than beer before Prohibition. Yeah. Because apple orchards are a lot easier to grow, and, you know, and I guess mead by extension would be pretty easy. Mm -hmm. And each gallon of mead takes about three pounds. So that's a lot of mead I could have made from one beehive. So. Oh, yeah. Well, and if you accept like that you don't want to make the strongest meads you know if you mm. want to make a seven percent mead well your honey stretches a lot longer mm. okay well we're already way over time so we're gonna have to stop there but uh check out brewandgrow.com that's right for classes and you can also stop by they have a location in madison where what's the address uh 1525 williamson street so there you go all right well thanks a lot thanks for having me We don't have much of a DIY feature this week. We've been pretty busy with a number of different uh, moving-related projects here. Um, but starting next week, I'm going to put out a series of bicycle maintenance posts for our Thursday DIY features. And the reason I'm focusing on bicycles is because they're such a good solution for local transportation. Obviously, they're made in an industrial process, and they're mass-produced, and they're transported long distances to get to us. But mile for mile, they really seem to put out a lot less carbon than really any other fast transportation system. Bicycles are one of the most effective ways to use the human body for transportation. They're much more calorically efficient than running or walking or really any other uh, simple machine that we have. And so keeping your bike in good condition and being able to say fix a tire when you get a flat or keep your chain lubed, keep your brakes adjusted correctly is a really useful and nice entry-level way to keep yourself going. So we're gonna spend a couple of weeks going over some basic maintenance issues, like I said, fixing tires, keeping your chain lubed, adjusting your brakes, but then we might also get into a few more complex uh, overhauling, such as replacing frayed cables, repacking bearings, maybe replacing pedals, all kinds of things. So keep an eye out for those, and I'll have a lot more to say about them in the coming weeks. let's take a look at some of the stories we're following in low-tech news. I've seen these little small libraries all over. You might have seen them as well, little libraries. Well, now the same idea has been adapted for distributing food. NPR had the story this week about small pantries that allow folks in the neighborhood to leave and take food as needed. So check that story out. 
Uh, you might have also seen that the iconic sequoia tree in California, and you know the one I'm talking about, it's the sequoia tree or the redwood where they created a tunnel that you could drive through, and I always picture it with a VW bug driving through it for some reason. That tree fell down this last week, and, and it's a shame because it's an interesting icon because it's, you know, this icon of the natural world, the redwood, with this road cut through the middle of it. I don't really quite know what that says, but it is certainly a, a, a striking icon that went down this week. There's also a neat story on a geodesic dome that a Scandinavian family, I think they were Norwegian, built around their house. And essentially they put their house inside of a greenhouse. And obviously we all know that a greenhouse keeps the interior a little warmer than the outside by trapping solar rays. And this does the same thing even in the winter. They're able to keep their garden going a lot longer each year and cut down on their heating bills as well because they were living in an artificially warm environment. So that's kind of an interesting idea. I've seen it a couple other places as well, not just geodesic domes, but greenhouses that were cut and shaped specifically to fit over houses. It's certainly an interesting idea and worth checking out. I was also excited to see the more clay, less plastic movement coming out of Italy. This is a great idea and really hits many of the boxes on our quote-unquote is it low-tech checklist that we posted a few weeks ago on the blog. So even if clay is more fragile than plastic, it has a lot of advantages and you should really check out that story to see more of them and maybe consider instead of using Tupperware and things like that, shifting over to ceramic containers when you can. Those are a few of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. To see links to the stories we discussed here and more, visit the Low Tech website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com, or you can follow the link in our podcast profile. And now I'll recap a little bit of the research we have going on around the Institute this week. It's been pretty quiet, but one thing we did do was we finally ate some of those acorns that we harvested this last fall. And we used them as the base for garden burgers. And they turned out pretty decent. They seem to be a good base, kind of umami flavor for a garden burger and perhaps a umami or meat replacement flavor. They actually tasted a lot like chestnuts, if you've ever had chestnuts. They're not too dissimilar to that. However, acorns, of course are very bitter when you first collect them, and they have to be soaked in order to leach the tannins out. And there's two ways to do that, which we outlined on the blog this week, but one method, the cold method, essentially has you putting a container with water and acorns in the refrigerator and stirring it up and replacing the water at least once or twice a day, and over time it draws out all these bitter tannins. Then the nut meat can be dried and ground into flour, and doing it the cold way is good if you want starchy, flour substitute, but if you want to eat the nut meat as actual contiguous nut meat, then you probably want to go with the hot leaching method, which is boiling the water and dumping it out and replacing it every 20 minutes or so. That leaches the tannins out a lot quicker, but also removes a lot of the starches, so you wouldn't want to then grind them up and try and make flour out of them because they wouldn't be as starchy. You can check all that information out on the blog. Uh, eventually I'll have a couple of acorn recipes and things up as I've tested them out. And other than that, it's been pretty quiet around the Research Institute because we've been really busy um, getting the legal entity of the Institute going, writing bylaws, articles of incorporation, um, searching for a permanent residence and all these things. So we've been pretty busy, but don't really have a lot of progress to report otherwise. That's it this week for the Low Tech Podcast. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was a well-worked analogy off the album 8-Bit Empire by Ozzed. 
That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share them as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. And please give us a rating. It helps boost our audience reach. I'd be happy to have your feedback, which you can leave me on soundcloud.com slash lowtechpodcast. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno and reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. Thanks and take care.